MNK Talk YA now presents Soul of the Sword Part 1 of the Shadow of the Fox Trilogy by Julie Kagawa. MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we started the second book in a trilogy by Julie Kagawa. This is Shadow of the Fox. And we started the second book, which is called Soul of the Sword. Yep. And for this week we read up to part two. So we read all of part one. And I will confess, I read this part in pretty much one sitting over the course of like a couple hours. Because I was very, um, I was very lax in my reading this week, and I didn't get to it until today, the day we were recording. <laughs> to be fair, I do that a lot, but I also did that this time. And I, <laughs> I've just been, I think it's like some of this COVID stuff going stir crazy. I like can't focus on reading the same way I used to recently. Mm. Well, my excuse is I was reading a really good book before this one, and I didn't want to start reading our book and kind of, and like get them confused. I just finished the book of longings. Oh yeah. You really liked it? <sighs> I loved it. Oh my God. It was so good. It, it was about, it was like a reimagined story of Jesus where he was married and it's like about the woman he married. I loved it. Highly recommend. It's by Sumant Kid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She wrote Secret Life of Bees and uh, The Invention of Wings. She did an interview with Brene Brown on her podcast, Brene Brown's podcast. I just like oh. love Brene Brown, but um, it was a really good interview. You should check it out. Oh, I bet. I'll have to to that. Anyway, all that means is that I didn't get to read this book until today, but it's very fresh in my mind. So <laughs> let's dive in. That's something I also do with our book. Both I try to finish whatever I was reading before, so I like don't mix up the stories. And I also try to finish reading whatever we're doing for podcasts kind of close to when we record, so it is fresh. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we're, I guess, officially we're halfway through the whole series now because we're halfway through the yeah. second book. What do you think of book two versus book one so far? So I had a much easier time reading book two just because I kind of, I feel like everything is a little bit more familiar now. Like mm-hmm. I definitely struggled in the first book because there was just so many like mythological creatures whose names I didn't recognize and there was just kind of a lot to figure out. Yep. So now that I kind of have found my footing and I know where the story's going, I'm finding it a lot more of an enjoyable experience to read it. How much do you think it helps to just have the names at the beginning of the chapter? So much. <laughs> I'm so glad they made that addition. Like, honestly, like, what were they thinking? I don't know. In the first book, not putting character names at the beginning. Like, I just don't even understand why they made that decision because it, it makes no sense. I also do think, I think we're talking about even the voices of Yumiko and Tatsumi in book one were kind of similar. I do think that now that we're seeing Hakimono's perspective, I feel like his voice is more distinct than Yumiko's. So I think it would be a little bit easier anyways, but definitely it helps me to just see the name and like orient right away and then jump in wherever we left off. I totally agree. And it also helps that they're in two distinctly different places. Like in the first book, Yumiko and Tatsumi were together for most of the book. So it was like the chapters opened with 
with the same description of the location, so it was, like, really hard to figure out who was talking. Very true. But now that, like, they're in two such different places, it is a bit easier. But, yeah, it, they should have been doing this all along. <laughs> Yes, but I agree. I'm like more into it. I think the first book helped establish a lot of things. Some of the things we just talked about helped in book two. But like you said, initially, even just sort of already being comfortable with the world and some of the characters, it's just it was easier to dive into this one, I think, for me. And I like that we are getting some more backstory. Yeah, I will say, I think that like as much as I'm enjoying the backstories, I wish they were more elegantly inserted. That's fair. And and I had the problem that problem with the first book, too. I felt like there was kind of a lot of information dumping where they just the author just like needed to get stuff established and we kind of just had to like hang on for the ride until we could get going mm-hmm. and we, I kind of felt that way about the second book too like it opens with a thousand years ago I think we yep. see like the great kami dragon being summoned again by Kaje Hirotaka and we kind of get the backstory for the sword Kamigarashi where this shadow clan member his family was killed by Hakimono and he asked the dragon for vengeance. Uh, specifically, he wanted to capture the spirit of this demon uh, so Hakimoto could suffer for all eternity. And the dragon gives him the sword, Kamigarashi, also called the Godslayer. Mm-hmm. So I liked that we got that backstory. I thought that was super interesting. We kind of learn how he was the first shadow clan member to wield the sword and he was driven insane and he ended up like slaughtering every member of a the fire clan which during a meeting to discuss a treaty and so he started a big war yep and that's why the scroll was divided because they were like no one can be trusted to summon this dragon um because terrible things happen every time they do and so that's why like the scroll was separated and you know divided up so no one could find it yeah and i love that we found out that if the scroll is like burned or or tossed away or something like that it just reappears yeah it wants to be found for someone who's looking for it yeah I love that idea because that was my biggest not biggest problem but that was I think I mentioned it in an earlier episode I was like why don't they just burn it if they don't want anyone to read it like (laughs) let's just get rid of it and then you don't have to worry about hiding it so that made me happy and same with the sword we learned that Kamigarashi just can't be like destroyed like it's very difficult to destroy something that the dragon gives you like they're gifts right so you can't just dispose of them so he can like possess someone but once that body dies he's back in the sword instead of being so he's not even truly free he's like semi-free when he is free right 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 yeah i think a lot of things just connected better this in this book because Mm -hmm. a we've had some of the storylines connect in general and b we sort of knew references more like before at the end of the first book when we saw satomi talking to the skull Mm-hmm. We were also like, what is that? And that's right. the, that's the one that Hakimono is visiting, right? The Gino or whatever his name is. Yep, the Master of Demons. Yep. The Master of Demons, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'm glad we finally got that tie-in because I, I was confused at the end of the first novel too. I was like, what is this talking skull that she's communicating with? It didn't make any sense. And now it's like, it is tying back together. But I still have one big character question, which is who is Suki hanging out with now? I mean, like we've seen him a few times, <laughs> but I can't tell if he's good if he's bad what his motivation is whose side he's on he's like (sighs) that's a good question so she's hanging out with lord uh sujitsu along with a yokai named taka and i don't okay which also reminded me because we saw them right after we picked up okami in the first half of the first book didn't they visit 
and talked to, maybe it was Tatsumi or it was Yumiko. I think Yumiko was inside drinking sake and Tatsumi like talked to them outside and he, Hmm. am I like making this up completely? Do you remember a scene like this where like the boy came out of the forest and said like my master wants to like warn you? Am I like totally making this up? No, that that does sound familiar. But I can't really remember what was said, (laughs) but I like until this scene, I didn't remember that at all. And then I was like, oh wait, we've seen this kid before. Yeah, I don't know if I trust Sijitsu because he's like using this yokai to see visions of Yumiko and it seems kind of weird how he's using him and I'm just like why are you spying on her like what is your end game I don't really understand if he's like protecting her or if he wants the scroll yeah I'm not he's not like showing up enough in the book for me to get a good idea of what he wants or who he is yeah and he made those comments like it's important to the story for that certain things happen or that so I'm like curious again what is his end goal is it to help them like achieve the prophecy where they prevent the thousand year curse from coming back around Mm -hmm. or is it like some selfish thing where he's trying to like wait until all the pieces line up and then he's gonna go in and like seal the scroll for himself we don't really know but I agree the way he is he (laughs) yeah I have no idea is he human but the way he handled that Taka's future scene and then he was like I don't he doesn't remember what he prophesized or whatever yeah Mm -mm. that was definitely sketchy at at the at a minimum yeah the fact that Suki was like a little sketched out by it made me think that we should also be sketched out by it (laughs) yes I trust Suki. Gosh, the other thing that was helpful was the research that I did in the first book. Oh, yes. About Kitsune, because we learned that, well, I researched that Kitsune can also possess humans. And it's like a type of magic that they can use where they can kind of take up residency in your soul and control you. And we learned that that may be the only way they can save Tatsumi is by having Yumiko do her fox magic and possess his spirit at the same time as Kamigarashi and kind of fight to bring down Hakimono and save Tatsumi. Yeah, and I love all the details around that too. Like the fact that she's always been taught that it's evil magic. So she's like really against the idea, which I guess is fair because possessing someone feels like usually an evil thing to do. But Pretty invasive. (laughs) Yeah. And then seeing there's like this concern now about how much like a mortal soul can handle being essentially invaded by especially multiple things because the demon's already living there and now we're talking about having three people inside one soul or whatever and then also at the very end so we've had this um like silver fox (laughs) uh show up (laughs) is it george clooney (laughs) (laughs) literally um show up a couple of times now when yumiko's sleeping and do you think oh i just thought of this do you think that is potentially the other guy the what other beard guy? the guy with suki oh sujutsu yeah um i don't know that would mean that sujutsu is also kitsune because i think the silver fox we learned that like once a fox gets its ninth tail or something it becomes all powerful and it turns silver so that was my research too so maybe he is an all-powerful Kitsune. Maybe. Like, I, I guess... That could be. We have no reason to really think that, except that those are two characters that I don't know where else they came from, so I'm like, they must be the same, or maybe they're brothers out to get each other or something else. <laughs> we'll see. I would like them to be the same, because that, I mean, at this point, I'm like, one less character would be fine by me. Like, there's already so many. Yeah, and that would at least... We still don't understand the full motivation, but at least there's not two unknown motivated people if they are. Right. But regardless, in the Fox form, at least, he has been 
uh, advising Yumiko in her dreams about how to effectively go save Tatsumi. And yeah. the fact that she in like the dream world which is the same as what will be happening internally when all the souls are in one body her magic can be as powerful as she wants it to be or like as powerful as she can imagine it to be so instead of like the useless blue flames they can actually burn things up and be destructive and and whatnot so which seems very convenient to me (laughs) yeah you know it's just like oh in your shadow world or in your dream self you can be as powerful as you want and you know this gives you a chance to defeat Hakimono but I do like the idea of her like being able to possess a soul and that being a way to free Tatsumi. I do like that as like a, a plot thing. I also really like how dangerous it, it is. Like mm-hmm. there's so many things that could go wrong. Like Hakimono could kill all of them, mm-hmm. which is a very easy thing to do. She could be successful, but Tatsumi's soul could be destroyed or like you know, irrevocably alter. Or go crazy. Yep. Yeah. Or she could save him and, you know, all was well, they trap Hakimono. So there's definitely a bunch of outcomes that that uh <laughs> that we could have here. Well, and what I hope is that she's, regardless of what she can do in the dream world, I hope she uses more of her, like, um, like approaches it from this, like, fox cunning, trickery, slightly mm-hmm. misleading way. Because I love when she uses that or, like, plays pranks or outsmarts people more than, because she hasn't been the strongest or, or anything before. Mm-mm. But she's been successful because she's, A, aware of and empathetic to other people, so I think she can pick up on things. And B, she just thinks on her feet really well. Yeah, absolutely. She's great at improvising. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I liked how right now the fox, the silver fox, is get trying to get her to um, meet Tatsumi in the dream world. Yeah. Uh, because he says, like, if, you know, Hakimono has to sleep, so if you go to Tatsumi when he's sleeping, you can communicate with him without Hakimono finding out, and you have to warn him that you're coming if you're gonna possess his soul, because that will give you a better chance, because he will, like, view your invasion as, like, a friend coming and not something that's threatening. Mm-hmm. So you won't try and fight her, hopefully. If anything, right. they can maybe team up together. It was also interesting just this idea that he is such a strong so- Like, I hope that whenever she gets in there, he's also... It feels like he's been fighting throughout and, like, hasn't given mm-hmm. up. So maybe between the two of them, they can overpower Hakimono. I hope so, too. I mean, the what they do have going for them is, if you remember, Yumiko is summoned by Lady Hanshu in this first half. Mm-hmm. and she goes to meet her and while she's there like in the shadow clan territory she meets Tatsumi's old master and he tells her that the people who you know have what it takes to wield Kamigurashi have the purest of souls mm-hmm. and so I I like hope that that has something to do with him and you know yeah will allow him to get free of this agreed were you gonna talk about the other dream scape we've witnessed <laughs> yeah <laughs> i did not see this coming did you so i did but only in the last like in this half there were a couple of points but i i couldn't quite decide but there were a couple of points where just there the interaction between the two of them so we see okami and i always forget the other guy's name what's his name tesuki and tesuki the demon prince yeah how would you describe like they are fallen in love yeah yeah there's some major flirting going on (laughs) at least and stuff but there were a couple of other lines where the two of them even when they were like sneaking off or some of the comments they were making felt a little less 
aggressive. Like I used to feel like they were really at odds and more flirty to me in this half of the book even before that scene. Well, yeah, because Okami always jokes that he's like a, you know, a stinking ronin dog. And Dasuke is like, you know, this very honorable prince. And so they always kind of joke that they're on like opposite sides. But we, I guess if I had to go back and like pinpoint a moment where there was some foreshadowing, it was when, uh, who was it? Nangori, Naganori was taking them through the shadow world Mm -hmm. or through the path of shadows to see Lady Hanshu and it's like a really dangerous way to travel because the dead are kind of like lurking in the shadows and they're jealous of the living and they will call out to you and try to stop you. So they go through this spirit realm, Mado it's called, and they all see like their worst fears and failings and um, Yumiko sees her old master telling her that he that she was useless and like Denga taunts her and Okami sees his brother yes Yasuo who he abandoned and betrayed in some way we didn't get the full story but we just learned that Okami's brother died because of him and we do see Dasuke you know saving him and saying like you know come away it's not real and then he has this like very real pity for him afterwards and he's like you know I don't I don't think that you're a ronin scum I think you're someone who's lived a really hard life and is trying his best so I think it was that moment where like they started exactly to reconcile with each other yeah yeah so this so before this book I had no inkling I also noticed that moment and then when they had like snuck off to the when he was getting drunk at the lucky frog or whatever there was a comment or two made in that scene too where I was like wait are they hinting at something and then we saw the dream sequence but yeah I think I was a the thing in the earlier foreshadowing that kept me from jumping there completely was we've seen Suki and I know she's technically dead but she has a huge crush on Suki yeah Yeah. and so not that I guess we've necessarily seen him feel that way back but she was also his biggest regret yeah so even though he's like killed and like you know there's a lot of other things you might think he would regret but he has no regret except feeling like he failed her because she like didn't have it coming everyone else who he's you know everyone he challenged on the bridge could have walked away and like all this stuff so he feels honor about all of those decisions but that's his one regret and so that almost made me think like is there going to be something between the two of them down the road mm. but maybe that doesn't make any sense because she's dead yeah it, yeah and it, but it also is like a way that I think Okami came around to Dasuke's character because he always thought like oh you're this pampered mm-hmm. royal like you're a prince and then the fact that Dasuke said that you know his greatest regret was a peasant girl that he couldn't save I think that like yeah that I mean that like moment was very big for both of them in this <laughs> shadow realm. True. Yeah. And it was just a, a really cool setting. Like it was a it was an interesting scene and like the idea that the dead are jealous of you and will try and rise up and like lure you down into the depths was pretty pretty cool. I liked that. Well, and I love that the dead see the living as the people they're most jealous of, not the actual living person. And the living see the dead as their biggest regret, not the actual... Like, it's not... They weren't seeing the specific souls that they thought they were seeing mm-hmm. begging them. And it, I, I love that idea. You're right. It is a really cool concept of sort of... The, yeah, the dead are there and jealous of the living, but they're not actually seeing who it is. It's just like this kind of generic idea and vice versa. The living have regrets and... And they're seeing them manifested in like the, who, I don't, I'm rambling, but yeah, you get it. (laughs) (laughs) Talking's hard. (laughs) 
Oh gosh, what else? Okay, so <laughs> there was so much that happened in this half. Um, we have do do do. Should we talk about Hakimoto's? What he's been yeah. up to since he took over Tatsumi's body. <laughs> he has been kind of making his way back home uh, towards this cursed island where there's a forest of a thousand eyes. And I got confused because there just seemed to be, like, every time we got to someone who I thought was, like, the king of the demons, there was always, like, one more person above them. <laughs> I don't know if you felt this way, but I, but at first it was like, oh, Hakimoto, he's, like, the greatest oni. And I was like, great, he's at the top. And then all of a sudden there's... Oh, Hakuman, who's the ruler of Jigoku. But then there's also Geno, who is the master of demons. And I was just like, there's just so many of them. Like, I can't keep them straight. So Geno is a human who was a blood mage. So he's not a demon himself. He's just like a human who's basically sacrificed his soul, I think, because he's done so much blood magic to Jigoku. Mm -hmm. And I don't really understand his full backstory. We haven't heard a ton ton a ton about it but I guess his village was destroyed because the samurai abandoned the village instead of helping them and so he's like against the whole kind of social structure of the world here now and wants to punish the ruling class and be in charge himself I think but yeah but he himself is not a demon this is like where I was getting confused because he's not a demon but the demons are following him and some of them are being bound to him and he does have this powerful magic so I'm guessing his soul has been has gone because that's we learned blood magic does to you right yeah his soul belongs to jugoku now but i just i guess i'm just confused because like yeah how can he be mortal still and have all this stuff happening i don't that's why i like don't fully get him i get that he is a blood mage but he's also just a skull so how does right. he come back and then why again why are all these demons even listening to him i like don't understand why they're following him <laughs> I don't either. Especially because he's not, doesn't even have a body right now. And it seems like they all respect strength and all this stuff. So I don't know. Yeah. And we, we know that like Jeno wants to, he wants the scroll to summon the dragon to make a wish to make himself whole again so he can gain his full power and then kill all the humans and make himself emperor. Yep. So that is his goal. And only a mortal can summon the dragon. Yep. Uh, and Hakimono comes and he's like, I'll make a deal with you. I will get the scrolls for you if you destroy Kamigarashi because I don't want the sword to exist anymore. I want my spirit to be free. So, but he wants to be an equal. He's like, I'm not going to bow to anyone. Like, yeah. which is so silly to me because I'm like, how can a demon and a mortal be equal? Like, it seems like the demon would be far more powerful but i guess i guess if you're bound i mean it's the same with the blood magic like even with who is the demon last time you're you're uh forget his name but the demon that um oh yeah 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 he had to listen to satomi right because she bound him with blood magic or like called him forth i I think there's like weird magic rules but you're right i don't fully understand it but it i I sort of buy that they need each other because he needs the scroll and we understand his motivation for wanting the scroll and i thought it was interesting because part of why they said that the temple has been hidden from people for so long the steel feather temple why no one knows where it is is because they've just not talked to anyone outside of the temple for generations so everyone's forgotten but hakimono is a demon who's been around for thousands of years so he has the memory of where it is so like even though no living person maybe knows where it is anymore except our band of i don't know jiro or whatever but he actually does know where it is because he was around back then which i I, I like love that idea Mm -hmm. kind of but and then the reason he's gone to gino is because with his blood magic he's an expert at 
this whole binding idea. So he's hoping he can break the binding because he's so good at blood magic, which I kind of buy that part too. I just don't really get mm-hmm. why all the other demons are following him. <laughs> I don't know either. And oh my God, there are so many demons. Like when he was trying to get to Geno, all the demons he encountered on his way, they were so cool. Like we had the blood drinking trees yeah, that would like catch people with their limbs and then like drain their blood. And then the screaming horse heads that oh, yeah. just fell from the trees that was uh bizarre and then the floating man-eating heads lots of like those are my favorite lots of disembodied heads yeah yeah those are my favorite too i like how they can all the little heads can join to form one head (laughs) the other one i really liked and this is not exactly the same level but when they got to the actual castle and there was that uh narika or whatever the wall demon that just like wouldn't let people through (laughs) i don't know that one was funny to me too yeah and then the um the scorpion twins oh yeah there's just there were so many demons there were scorpion twins who were like assassins and bodyguards who are now following jeno there's akka the red who they think is the child of a woman and an oni who's like this famous demonic figure um they have like a whole horde of very interesting demons I also don't get why Akka is so scary right now. I don't either. I feel like we didn't get enough of a back... Like, with the Scorpion <laughs> sisters and stuff, A, they sound scary, and B, I felt like we got enough of a backstory where I was like, oh yeah, I would not want to cross them. But then Akka the Red, they were just like... <laughs> Oh yeah, he's the most trusted because he's up here and like we should definitely, he would be a good adversary. But like, he sounds like a small child with horns. Like, I don't know. Yeah, they're like, oh, beware the redheaded stepchild. Like, he's going to get you. And I tried to do some research on them. Um, I couldn't find anything about Akka the Red or the Sasori twins, except that Sasori is a character from the Naruto anime i couldn't find a lot the only character that i did find some information about was um remember when yumiko goes to see she goes to look for okami and dasuke and she finds a cat with two tails oh yeah really hates Mm -hmm. her (laughs) so i did find some information about that was such a cat personality to me though oh my god as a dog person i was like yep that sounds like a cat Yep, just super snarky and like irritated at everything. And yeah, kind of- I'm not gonna help you unless it benefits me. <laughs> I love like that comparison to a dog, right? Like she's like, "Will you show me where to go?" I'm not a dog. I don't just do what humans <laughs> ask. <laughs> do what I want. (laughs) They are called Nikomata, and I believe Niko just means cat, but um, they're mysterious cats that were said to have killed and eaten several people in one night. There's like two types, so there's one that's considered to be a mountain beast. They have eyes like cat and a large body like a dog. They live in the mountains, and people say they eat humans, and some people say that they are, they have an illness, it's like a cat monster, and it has an illness called the Nikomata disease which um, some people have interpreted to mean that it's like a beast that has rabies. Hmm. But uh, in the story, the mountain Nekomata, they hide deep in the mountains and they shapeshift into humans. And then they lure humans into the um, mountains and kill them. Do they just like eat them or why do they want them dead? What are they upset about? Oh, (laughs) I really don't know. Um, It just says that they like to shapeshift into humans, deceive people, and they like to eat. They like to eat people. Okay. Oh, here's a story. 
Um, okay, in, a, in this one story, there was an old cat raised in a villa on a mountain, and he had a secret treasure, a protective sword in its mouth, and it ran away. And people chased the cat, but it disguised itself and left behind um, the thought of a cat becoming a monster. And they said that... That's it, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was a very anticlimactic story. I guess it disguised itself somehow, and people like were left with this idea of cats, mountain cats, changing into monsters. I guess there's also an idea where people believe that domestic cats can turn into Nikomata as they grow old, and um, so you're like pet cats can grow old. It's because cranky old cats are mean. They really are. <laughs> and they live forever. Not fair. Yeah, I guess they believe that, or some people believe that old cats can transform and will eventually eat and abduct people, and they run away to live in the mountains. So I guess as a result, they say um, there's a folk belief in Japan that cats should not be kept for long periods of time. <laughs> <laughs> but the cat, this particular cat, the Nekomata, is said to have two tails. Okay. And... Like the one we saw. Mm-hmm. Yep. Are there any actual cats that have two tails? No, right? I mean, like, uh, no. there's no breeds of cats that do. Okay. There's cats that have no tails. <laughs> okay, yeah. I was just wondering. I don't know enough about cats. I didn't think so, but... <laughs> So in Japan, cats are often associated with death, which is kind of interesting. Some people also believe that the Nekomata has powers of necromancy and can raise the dead and then control them with dances um, and then gesturing with their paws and their tail. They're associated with fires and other inexplicable occurrences, including poltergeist activity. Hmm. Oh, they said the older and muse the older and more abused a cat is prior to its transformation, the more power the Nekomata is said to have. To gain revenge against people who have wronged it, the spirit can haunt humans um, with visitations from their deceased relatives. I feel like these cats are just getting blamed for everything now. I'm almost feeling sorry yeah, for them. really? <laughs> oh my gosh. Due to these beliefs, sometimes kittens' tails were cut off based on the assumption that if the tails could not fork and form two tails, the cats could not become Nikomata. So sad. Yeah. So then I... S- I kind of switched over to the um, Maneka Neko, which is the the lucky cat. So if you've ever seen, like sometimes if you go into Chi- uh, Chinese or Japanese restaurants, you see a Maneko Neko or a Maneki Neko with the um, cat with its with its hand up. The gold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm picturing something that I think is what you're talking about. Yeah. So they're called lucky cats, and there were some tales about why these cats were called were considered lucky. Um, the first was there was a wealthy man who took shelter from a rainstorm under a tree next to a temple and he noticed a cat that seemed to be beckoning him so he followed it inside and shortly after lightning struck the tree that he'd been standing under and so because the cat had saved his life the man was very grateful and he became a benefactor of the temple and brought it a lot of prosperity it's like a lassie cat yeah (laughs) and then when he passed away a statue of the cat was made in his honor and then there's another one where another story about this cat where a geisha had a pet cat that she really loved and one day it was pulling at her kimono with her with its teeth and the owner of the place where the geisha lived thought the cat was possessed so it's so it, he cut off his head and then it says the flying cat head landed on a snake about to strike and the fangs killed the snake and saved the woman that's a terrible story i mean it's a good story but it's also really sad <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah, so the flying cat head, like, bit the snake, killed the snake, saved the woman. The geisha was so distraught that one of her customers made a statue of the cat to cheer her up. I'm just imagine if someone killed my cat and then was like, oh, 
But it actually was a really good cat because it saved a life and here's a statue. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to die to do that though. I know. I guess if, so that, so they're supposed to be lucky and that's why you see them a lot. And they say if the, if the cat's left paw is raised, it, it's supposed to attract customers. <laughs> if the right paw is raised, this invites good fortune and money. And then I guess the most traditional color is cat is to, for it to be calico, but there's also white cats that or what these white cat statues that represent happiness, purity, and positive things. Um, gold represents wealth and prosperity. Black wards off evil spirits, and red means success and love. Interesting. What kind of cat statue would you get? White happiness, purity, and positive things. Yeah, that sounds good to me too. <laughs> but yeah, so I researched a lot about cats in this uh, this section, and I thought that was interesting because I never really knew the um, the stories behind that Maneki Neko cat. Me either. That you see in a lot of places. Well, and I until you reminded me, I actually was thinking, oh, the Japanese must just not really like cats based on the other stories you were telling. So that right. that, that makes I'm glad that we we have both sides of that. Cool. Well, I really wanted to look up the Narukabi because I thought that was like the funniest thing this like wall that just won't let people through and I didn't really find anything I like went down this rabbit hole what else is new I guess I found something so it I guess it the folklore origin was basically a story created to explain why sometimes travelers don't arrive or get delayed and there are some different theories. Some think okay. that they're, they like appear, the like wall appears and it's its own being and it just obstructs or impedes someone's path, but it might disappear if you hit it in its nether region, specifically the lower Ooh. left side. Okay. Does that mean like you hit it in the ball? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the left ball. <laughs> There's also the Nubo or Nobu Suma, which is like a Japanese sliding door that can disappear if you sit in front of it and smoke. Okay. Or there's the Nuribu, which is a version that appears on mountain roads specifically at nighttime. And sometimes they say that it's not actually the wall itself, but it's a tanuki that stands like on top of the wall and covers the traveler's eyes so that they can't see the wall or something i don't know i was getting kind of confused but for some reason this brought me then i was thinking about okay so the wall won't let you through travelers who don't show up when they're supposed to and i was thinking about this forest of a thousand what was it a thousand something eyes eyes yeah so i was thinking about the of the forest of a thousand eyes where any travelers that go into it don't come out of it. Then I was thinking about like the Bermuda Triangle. And then I was just like, I wonder if there are other places that people disappear in. And I didn't find those. But basically, I somehow ended up on the 10 coolest places you're not allowed to visit. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So the Bermuda Triangle honestly scares me. It, Yeah, I think I like started reading and I know we've talked about it, at least the Bermuda Triangle in one of our other series. I can't remember which one, but I was like, I actually, this is like too close to home. So this was like more exciting to read about kind of cool places in the world that have, that are either very difficult to get to or are very restricted to go visit. So I, I thought this was kind of just more fun. And it's kind of like how very few people go to the forest of a thousand heads, eyes. Ears. What is it? Why can't I remember what it is? There's a, there's a lot of them. <laughs> eyes, ears, noses, eyes. I'm pretty sure it's, it's eyes. Yeah, it is. I, I think I was just also thinking there's a lot of heads there, floating heads. Yeah, so, so many. I, I think I counted a thousand heads, but I guess... Horse heads, human heads. Maybe there were 500 and they had a thousand eyes. Okay, okay. Anyways, 
There is this uh, volcanic island off of Australia called Heard Island Volcano, and it's like two-thirds of the way between Madagascar and Antarctica. It's 368 square miles, has 41 glaciers, and has like a bunch of seals and penguins and marine birds there. But in 2000, the University of Hawaii noticed a two-kilometer-long lava flow from the southwest side of Mawson's Peak, which is like a really tall, complex volcano. And it's been active ever since. So not only is there an active volcano and it's dangerous, but the weather is like extremely bad all the time. And it's a two-week sail to any other major landmass. So it's just in general one of the most dangerous and hardest places in the world to access. Then there's Snake Island in Brazil, also known as Ilha de Quiamada Grande. No, that just sounds like a place you should never go for any reason. Oh my goodness, it's terrifying. Snake Island? It's 20 miles off of the Sao Paulo shore, and it's home to one of the most deadly species of snakes, known as the Golden Lancehead Viper. Nope. Whose venom can eat through flesh. God damn it. There are more than 4,000 of them on the island. Holy shit. (laughs) According to local legend, there's at least one snake for every five square meters of land, and... Oh my god. Whether or not that's true, the Brazilian government has prohibited visitors from setting foot there, except for every couple of years the government gives a handful of scientists a permit to go and study the snakes. How many dumb people try and get there every year, like try and sneak in? Who, to be like the who next would do that? Hunter? that that's, um, oh, I could think of plenty of dumb Americans who would do that. I know, but that's, what, what's that called? The, uh, Evel- or the Darwin Award? That's like, they deserve yeah. <laughs> yes. whatever they have coming yes. up. Agreed. There's also a small, heavily forested island in the Bay of Bengal that is circled by coral reef, so it's really hard to mm-hmm. approach by boat. But the biggest challenge is that there is still a group, uh, like a small group of indigenous people known as the Sentinelese, who essentially have rejected all contact with other people. So they're one of the last mm-hmm. communities that has sort of remained untouched by modern civilization. And I guess uh, as Recently as 2008, I don't forget when this article was, but there were two fishermen whose boat accidentally came too close to the island and they were killed by the tribe. And after the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake that had that big tsunami, research helicopters were checking out the area to assess damage and they were attacked with like arrows and thrown stones as it flew over the coastline. So they just really don't want visitors. Yeah, I've heard of this place. I bet they don't have corona. I, yeah, probably not. Unless... <laughs> Don't go there, though. Then there's a complex series of caves in northwestern France where some of the most famous Paleolithic cave paintings have been discovered. Oh, wow. So it's like uh, over 17,000 years old and depicts mostly images of large animals that we think lived there at the time based on fossils that have been found in the area. And it's listed as a World Heritage Site, but in 2008, they've been closed off to the public because there was a fungal outbreak. So now only a few scientists are allowed to enter for a few days a month to study the paintings. Ooh, that sounds like something you don't want to get. I love how they all have just like a slightly different story too. So this one is kind of creepy. There's an island located between Venice and Lido in northern Italy, and at different points in its history, it's been a fort, it was a shipping checkpoint, 
It was a quarantine station for the bubonic plague, and it was an asylum. And in 1968, the psychiatric hospital that was there closed down and the island was abandoned. And it's considered one of the most haunted places on Earth because supposedly there's ghosts of plague victims, poor victims. Oh my god. Uh... Some murderous asylum doctor, etc. Have they? They've made a movie about this, haven't they? Probably. They have to have. I don't watch movies like that, so I don't know, but. I do. <laughs> and I guess the Italian government offered the island up for long term lease, like a 99 year lease in 2014, in hopes that someone would redevelop the land. I don't know if anyone eventually took them up on it or not, but. Wait, what, uh, what is the name of the island again? Poveglia. Poveglia. P-O-V-E-G-L-I-A. I just, I also feel like it's such an interesting history to have, like, lived all these lives, right? Like, being a fort and being a quarantine site and being a asylum. Ooh, they said the doctor there, at the insane asylum doctor, experimented on patients with, with lobotomies. Ooh. Doesn't shock me, though. Anything you hear about asylums, I feel like were not great science going on at the time. <laughs> um, is... Is Centralia on your list? I don't think so. Where's that? Oh, okay. It's in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, it's the town that is basically on fire. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. No, it's yeah, not on the like list. Yeah, like a coal scene. Okay. It's probably not a cool place to visit. No. But none are any of these? <laughs> I don't know. These Most of these I haven't heard of, although Area 51 is on here too. And oh, okay. I'm not even going to talk about that one because people know about that one. But there is one in Japan. So we have the Isa Grand Shrine, which is in the town of Ujitaki. And it's a Shinto shrine complex dedicated to the goddess Amaterasu Omikami. Mm-hmm. And it consists of two main shrines and 125 secondary shrines, supposedly dating back to the third centuries, but the structures have been dismantled and replaced every 20 years because of um, Shinto beliefs about death and renewal. So most mm-hmm. recently it was rebuilt in 2013. And supposedly there's, um, in the, one of the main shrines is the sacred mirror called Yata no Kagami, which is... I mentioned it briefly oh, yeah. last time. It's one of the Imperial Regalia of Japan. And essentially access to this area is restricted to just the high priestess or priest who has to be a member of the Japanese Imperial family. And all you can really okay. see outside of that is like a fence and some roofs. Mm. That was, was cool because it was about Japan. And yeah. Then there was um, the tomb of Qin Shi Huang in China. He was the first emperor and died in 210 BC. And he's mm. buried in this hill beneath central china and it's like a huge underground cavern network that's filled with all kinds of stuff that the emperor would have wanted in his afterlife including reproductions of his army and his family and his servants and his horses and his staff etc so this is like the terracotta army you've heard of that i'm sure (laughs) and 2000 statues have been excavated since 1974 and experts believe there's more than 8,000 still there but in respecting the ancient burial rites, the Chinese government might never allow the excavation of the emperor's tomb itself. So you can catch a glimpse of some of the terracotta army at the site tour, but the main tomb is not allowed to be excavated as of now and possibly for a long time. Oh, I was going to ask if you could tell me more about the terracotta army. <laughs> I can tell you a little bit. It's basically, I mean, it's so it's uh, this emperor when he wanted to be buried. Oh my gosh, it's so big. Yeah, but it's all, they're all unique too. Like, it's not like a mold where they made like 2,000 of the same, you know, they manufactured a bunch of the same thing. They're each like a unique. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, um, it's supposed to be really cool, actually. I think it would be 
an interesting thing to see. It held more than 8,000 soldiers, 130 chariots with 520 horses and 150 cavalry horses. Yep. And again, they've evacu- or excavated some of it, but they've left a lot of it there and are not planning to... That's incredible. And then this is the last one, and it might be because I've been watching, like, end-of-the-world shows that I find this fascinating, but there's the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is a subterranean seed bank storage facility in Norway on the island of Spitsbergen. So 800 miles from the North Pole, 400 feet into a mountainside, it stores 840,000 samples of 4,000 different species of seeds from all over the world. Whoa. And it opened in 2008, but the the idea is basically it's a safety net if we if there's some kind of major global or regional event where we have extreme loss of diversity. So even like something nuclear or oh, whatever. Oh, I gotcha. So like we can regrow yep. all of our plants. So it's like a safety deposit for plants or something. <laughs> so like governments or organizations can deposit different seed varieties and they're the only ones who can access their own deposits. So it's like an 11,000 square foot facility with extremely advanced security systems and only a very limited number of employees have access to it. But I thought that was just kind of a cool thing that we even have that. And also terrifying to think of what could happen that would we would need that, but smart to do, I guess. Yeah, but so smart. Yeah. yeah. Those were so interesting. Anyways, so this was mostly not related to our research, but you can see why I, I hung out in that world for a little bit because it was pretty fascinating. I love that. I don't want to go to any of them, but... <laughs> not Snake Island? <laughs> I mean, maybe the ha- the extremely haunted island. I th- I'd want to go see the seed vault. I like scary things. Because that's yeah. kind of cool. And the terracotta army. So yeah, some of them are really cool. Yeah. I mean, I'd want to see the terracotta army that they've excavated, but I'm okay with like not disrupting the first emperor of China's resting place. Yeah. Like I don't want to mess with anything there. <laughs> yeah, that never turns out well. And I actually feel like that vol- that volcanic <laughs> island just seems really cool, but I would be terrified to be that far away from anyone else and like knowing there's a volcano going. Like it would be cool no. if there was some way to do it safely, but obviously there's not. <laughs> But yeah, I don't need to go check out these 4,000 snakes that have venom that can eat through my flesh. That one is a hard pass for me. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and I will add the forest of a thousand eyes to that list because... I was going to just ask you, what would you pick? Snake Island or the forest of a thousand he- eyes? Thought ahead. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think I'd take my chances with the snakes. I know, I think I, I would thought too. I would... <laughs> I never thought I would say that, but... I mean, at least there's one thing there and... I don't know, maybe you can get, like, really thick boots that snakes can't pierce through. Although if it can eat through flesh. You can climb trees, too. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'll just stay home and read oh. my books. <laughs> I'll adventure through through the word. Well, even, like, I was trying to think of, like, what would be what it would be worse, the Forest of a Thousand Trees or Lady Handshoe's, like, labyrinth. But I, I think I would take my chances with Lady Handshoe, for sure. I think I would, too. I just, you just don't know what to expect. Like, I don't think we've seen everything in that forest yet. Uh-uh. We've already seen some terrifying things. I feel like we just scratched the surface. <laughs> I agree. And I'd rather take my chances against humans than diabolic demons. Even with the shadow magic? Yes. Especially if I had kitsune magic, I think. Yeah, that would definitely help. <laughs> and if I was 
smarter on my feet. I feel like I would not be as good at Yumiko at like coming up with cover stories or like being honest, but a little bit misleading. I loved when she said that thing about, oh yeah, our journey was actually terrible and he smells like mushrooms Mm -hmm. and like whatever that whole thing was. That was really funny. She is like, I do think she's a very entertaining character. I will say that. Yeah. Okami is still, I think the funniest, but I feel like I would be friends with Yumiko if I could. Yes, me too. (laughs) I'm nervous for her though, because she has a lot of people who want to kill her right now. (laughs) Yeah. I love the political stuff. As we find out more about this political drama, like the fact that some people want Hakimo, or rather they want to kill, well, how do I say this? If Tatsumi gets back his body, if they rebind Hakimono to the sword to Kamigoroshi, then it sort of allows the power structure of the cage to remain the same because mm-hmm. she didn't make like a bad choice to let it out in the world versus if he continues to be extremely destructive and no one's able to help him, then it sort of allows a coup there where they can say we should have never let this demon out again it should have always been isolated let me be in charge of our people again or not again but yeah yeah we have this this other leader lady hanshu's rival ayazida and he is like blaming her for not keeping control and he wants to take her place as uh leader of the shadow clan so he's gonna try and do everything in his power to stop yumiko from getting to tatsumi whereas lady hanshu was like sure, by all means, try and help him because this will only make me look good. So now it's like, poor Yumiko, not only does she have demons after her, but now she has a bunch of Shadow Clan uh, people who are like trying to start a coup, also trying to kill her. Yep. Poor girl just can't win. And I'm actually really impressed that she has kept her Kitsune secret the whole time she's been here. Me too. I thought that was going to be out for sure. Yeah, because all, the, all these Shadow Clan people are like, we know everything. There are no secrets here. And she's like, oh boy, because I have two really big ones. And <laughs> and I have the scroll. I would totally spoil it. Although it bo- it bothers me when they keep talking like, is it oh, safe? Do you have the thing? It's like, oh my goodness, that is a terrible code. <laughs> so obvious. I totally agree. <sighs> Should we keep reading? See what happens? Meet some more demons. Let's do it. Yeah, let's finish this second book. What do you think? Where do you think we're going to end in this book? I hope we free Tatsumi. Yeah, I kind of think maybe we'll free Tatsumi, but not actually get rid of Hakimono. And I think that the scroll, something will change, shift in how the scroll is divided so that there's more pressure there. Do you think someone someone will summon the dragon? I don't think in this book, but I think possibly someone will have all the pieces of the scroll. I agree. I think that, I don't think we'll see the dragon in this book, but I think we eventually will. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I'm saying that is because the third book is called Night of the Dragon. Oh, is it? I didn't even remember. (laughs) That's really good predicting there, Marissa. (laughs) I'm very smart. I'm practically a demon slaying ninja. Is it my turn to tell a joke or is it yours? I actually don't remember. Do you have one? I have a dumb one. I think I have one from a fan, actually. Oh, tell me that one. So this is from Josh. Thanks, Josh. What has eight, eight eyes, eight legs, and eight hands? A spider? Eight pirates. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. You know I love a good pirate joke. Also, yeah. it felt like something we might run into in the forest of a thousand eyes until you hear what it is. But <laughs> We would run into one pirate with eight hands and eight heads exactly. and eight eyes. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Peg legs. Uh, what, what's on their hands? Hooks. Hooks. And uh, eye patches all around. 
Bring me more pirates. <laughs> That's amazing. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at mnktalkya. Tell us if you've ever been to any one of these forbidden places. <laughs> <laughs> and we will keep your secret. <laughs> or what we should add to the list, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell us all the places we should not venture. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.